Good morning. Good morning. Um, well, uh, so really, really sorry to see Carlisle go. He has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, been an outstanding student with us, all the different ways he's been involved and served. Been away from home for a long time. Actually, Carlisle's girlfriend, who's been away from him for these four years, is coming over to the UK to do a year study just as Carlisle gets back to Guyana. <laughs> his girlfriend is, is leaving to come to you, which is just um, ironic at least. If not, damn right sad. So uh, another year of waiting, Carlisle, but you've been such a blessing to us. We're really going to miss you big time. So we need, we need to do a church trip to Guyana sometime. Yes. Hire a cruise ship and go across to Guyana or something. Um, a lot of you have been asking about uh, Grace's dad. Grace's dad's funeral was on, funeral, uh, funeral was on Friday. Uh, it went, went well. It was a long day up to uh, uh, Cheshire. We're all up and back on the day. But it went uh, really well, so thank you for those who've been asking uh, about Grace and how she's doing. She's doing all right. Uh, a little bit tired, end of term, end of uh, the teaching year, as well as her dad dying. So uh, ready for a break, but she's, she's doing okay. So thank you to those who've been asking about her. And uh, two of my girls have gone overseas. Uh, Georgie went to Lebanon last Sunday, and Susie went to, arrived in Cape Town yesterday morning, so the house is, is feeling empty. Actually, yesterday, obviously, Georgie's in Lebanon, Susie's in uh, Cape Town. Nancy was down at the beach. Uh, Felicity was out with a friend. I had the house to myself. It, I was supposed to feel sad, but it was wonderful. <laughs> this is great. Taste of the future. <laughs> right. Uh, finishing off our series in Jonah. We've been in the book of Jonah for the first last few weeks. It's, uh, Jonah's a little book, just four chapters long, but it's packed with all kinds of rich material. And um, We've been particularly thinking about God's sovereignty and God's grace and God's mission as we've looked at this book. And uh, we've seen how the Bible speaks about the sovereignty of God, that God gets done the things that God wants to get done. And it's important to remember this. And uh, whether you're, for those of us who are Christians and for those here who are not this morning, this is an important thing to think about. If we're Christians, we have this confidence, actually a joy in the sovereignty of God, that we can say, God, we know that you ultimately are in control. And that brings us great security. Uh, for those of you who don't know Jesus, this is a, a question to kind of work through. What does it mean, this claim that there is a God and God is sovereign, God's in control? What implication does that have for the world and what ha- implication does it have for me? And uh, for me, one, part of what it means is I want to remember that in every circumstance of my life that God, yeah, God is in control, God is sovereign. And what we see in the book of Jonah is that Jonah tried to fight the sovereignty of God. He, he tried to ignore and disobey God's command. And actually, God let Jonah do what he wanted, at least to start with. He let Jonah disobey him. But in the end, God prevailed. And God did what God wanted to do. And I find that helpful to remember uh, in the situations of life and things as they are now, in, in the light of international and national events. We're going to be praying a little bit later about some of the stuff that's happening globally and and more locally, but it's good to be reminded that God is in control. God's sovereign. And uh, thinking about events of the last week or two with all the different uh, leadership uh, debates and competition within the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, and it all looks just very, very human. Men and women conspiring and plotting and, and making plans and schemes. But even behind that, somehow God, I believe, is in control. God's in charge. God's sovereign. God gets what God wants in the end. And we come to one who is king and has a kingdom. And God's kingdom operates differently from the kingdoms of this world. He doesn't operate as human rulers do. And those of us who are Christians need to remember whose kingdom we are citizens of. 
that in the end it's our citizenship of the kingdom of heaven which really counts and which will really last. And, and the book of Jonah reminds us of those things. The book of Jonah also reminds us about God's grace, that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. When, as you read the story of Jonah, what you find is that God is much kinder to people than you might expect. He's kinder to Jonah, and he's kinder to the sailors who Jonah tries to escape away from God with, and he's kinder to the city of Nineveh than you might expect. He's kinder than they, any of them deserve. And uh, what we learn from the book of Jonah is how gracious God is and how easily as we as human beings can miss the grace of God. And Jonah himself misses the grace of God. He misses it because he's very self-righteous. Uh, it's all about him rather than about other people and other, that what God has actually called him to. And you can miss the grace of God through idolatry by putting something in the place of God rather than God. And those who don't know God do that, but even those who do can do that. Jonah was a prophet of God, but he was also an idolater. He put his hatred of the Assyrian people. That, that really was his God more than the true God. And Jonah missed God's grace because of his self-righteousness and his idolatry. And so Jonah reminds us not to miss the grace of God and not to confuse things which are God's gifts to us as if we've earned them by right. As we read the book, we see that all that Jonah has and all that in the end Nineveh has is it's the gift of God, it's his grace. And the book reminds us that's true for us as well. And uh, if we're not to miss God's grace, well, I don't want to be like Jonah. I want to be more like Jesus and less like Jonah. And the book speaks to us about God's mission, that the sovereign grace of God is working to God drawing all people to himself. And we see that in the way that God sends the prophet Jonah to the city Nineveh. The Ninevites are people who are confident in their own superiority and are people who were, certainly by our moral standards, completely repugnant, just hideous people in terms of the things they did, their cruelty, their, their hideous cruelty, uh, are people who are most definitely not the people of God, yet God, in his sovereign grace, wanted them to know him and sends Jonah to them to warn them and speak of him. God's sovereignty, God's grace, and God's mission. And I want to finish the series today by thinking about what this book can say to us about revival, because that's what happens once Jonah finally gets to Nineveh. So we're going to read chapter 3 of Jonah. If you're not there yet already, it's on page 542 in these Bibles. Let me read it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removing his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Lord God, thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and I pray that this morning here we would know that again. I pray we would receive your grace and your love in our hearts, and I pray that you'd stir faith in us, that just as you were able to cause this uh, pagan city to turn en masse to you, I pray that we might have faith for what you can do in our world, in our country, in our town, in our day. So I pray you'd speak love to us and you'd speak faith to us this morning. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. What happens in Nineveh is miraculous. The, the Ninevites respond to God, and that's what revival is. It's a, a mass turning away from sin towards God, and it affects everyone from the highest to the lowest. Everyone in Nineveh is affected and included. Even the animals get caught up. The, uh, Jonah is full of reference to animals. It's kind of a nature story. There's lots of things to learn from the animal references, the nature references in Jonah. But even the animals get caught up in this act of repentance. The whole city turns in repentance towards God. They get a revelation of God's power and a revelation of God's holiness, which changes their hearts and changes their actions. That's what revival is. It's something which touches every section of society, changes people's hearts, changes people's actions, turns men and women away from their sin, and turns them towards God. And so the question I really want to throw out this morning, as even at this time of year, as everybody kind of, we uh, kind of sink back into, into the summer, is could we dare to believe for such a thing in our day? That in our day we might see something like what happened in Nineveh, that kind of turning towards God. As I was preparing for this morning, I was looking at the uh, shelves of my, uh, the book of my, books on my shelf, which is labelled. I've got a section of the shelf called Revival and Renewal, and I was looking at the, the books on revival that I've got there. And uh, when I get a book, I usually write in the in the front cover that it belongs to me because people always steal my books. And if you've got my books, bring them back. Um, and I, I usually write down the date of when I, when I buy it as well. And it was interesting that pretty much all the books on revival I've got are books I bought in the early 90s, over 20 years ago, when I was uh, properly a young man. And um, at that stage, God had really got hold of me. He'd given me something of a vision of what the church could be, what the church of Jesus Christ, what the local church should look like. And I, and I felt a real sense of call upon my life. I was in some kind of uh, confusion about what my career path should be just before God broke in and I ended up working for a church. But I had a sense of God's call in my life and I was really steeping myself in accounts of revival. I was buying these books about revival and reading about revivals that have happened in history and uh, reading about uh, people like the Moravians, who, this group in, in, in Moravia who uh, gathered together, formed a community, and in August 1727, there was a communion service in which there was this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them, and it launched them into incredible world-spanning mission, and they began a, a series, a, a season of prayer, which was famous as the 100-year the prayer meeting. They prayed for 100 years as a community, and they sent missionaries throughout the world, and you hear these incredible stories about them kind of going to the ships, the other side of the world, going on ships and pretty much selling themselves into slavery in order to be able to carry the gospel to other parts of the world. Just an incredible outbreaking of God. There should be some pictures of some of these, these guys who appear at some point. Um, Whitfield, particular hero of mine, uh, one account of, of him preaching, a famous account of him preaching in Kingswood near Bristol, which at that time was uh, coal mines. 
and the, the coal miners were a notoriously hard uh, bunch of guys. And he was preaching out in the field to them. It says, suddenly he noticed tears coming from the eyes of a young man on his right. These tears were forming a pale streak on his grimy face. He saw the same thing happen to an old miner on his left. And more and more of them, he, he said he saw white gutters made by their tears down their black cheeks. The men invited him to come the next day to speak to their friends and families. About 2,000 people came out to hear him preach. Five days later, he preached to 5,000. And two days later, to over 10,000. There's many accounts like that in Whitfield's life before moving here when I lived in southeast London at Blackheath. There's Whitfield's Mount on Blackheath Common, uh, which is where Whitfield preached, and he preached to crowds up to 20,000 people on Blackheath. And I used to go there and think about, imagine the thousands coming to hear Whitfield preach the gospel on Blackheath. John Wesley, at the same time as Whitfield, he traveled a quarter of a million miles on horseback. He preached more than 40,000 times. In 1767, there were 22,000 Methodists. By 1816, there were 180,000. This incredible Methodist revival. Jonathan Edwards in the States, also in the 18th century. Uh, all these guys have got good 18th century haircuts, apart from Spurgeon, who's got a good 19th century haircut. Um, Jonathan Edwards' account of the revival in his region says there was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who are wont to be the vainest and loosest and those who have been disposed to think and speak lightly of vital and experimental religion were now generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in the most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. From day to day, for many months together, might be seen evident instances of sinners brought out of darkness into marvelous light and delivered out of a horrible pit and from the miry clay and set upon a rock with a new song of praise to God in their mouths. And then Spurgeon in the 19th century, he became a pastor at 19 and saw people saved every time he preached and preached to crowds of 10,000 at the Surrey Music Hall in London. And I used to, I had all these books and was reading all these accounts 20, 25 years ago. And I think now 20 years on, I was looking at these books and seeing when I bought them and when I've been reading them. And I was thinking about where we are now and thinking, well, perhaps now we're just a bit more, perhaps I now am just a bit more kind of realistic 20 or so years on. The reality of these past 20 or so years is that seeing people come to salvation has been more than drips and torrents. It hasn't been the thousands upon thousands. It's been the ones and the twos, and there's also the reality of our nation, which 20 years on is even more secular than it was and increasingly hostile in many ways to the Christian faith. I think there's a lot that I and we have learnt over the past 20 or so years. I mean, we have seen incredible miracles. I've seen amazing miracles over these past 20 years. I've seen miracles in terms of people being healed, but I think perhaps especially in terms of financial provision. Think about the way that millions and millions of pounds has been given in churches, which I'm connected to, uh, for, for building projects and for mission to the poor. We've seen a renewed emphasis on ministry to the poor. That's become just central to what we do, what we believe the church is for. I think we've learned a renewed and seen a, re a renewed passion and clarity about mission that when we talk about mission, we're not talking about a mission which is something somebody does somewhere else in the world for a week or two, but it's something that we do home and abroad, that we're all called on a mission. We're called on a mission where we are, and we've got greater clarity about uh, 
that. So we've learned lots. I've learned lots over the last 20 years and seen lots. But I wonder if expectancy for revival is actually lower than it was. 20 years ago, I was buying books about revival. It's a while since I bought a book about revival. Now, thank God, God moving is not dependent upon my or your level of expectation. Certainly Jonah. It wasn't dependent on Jonah's expectation when he went to Nineveh. And you can see that the prime example of our times of God moving in an unexpected way is what's happened in China over recent years. It's a a quote from an article that was in the Daily Telegraph a couple of years ago. It says this, Officially, the People's Republic of China is an atheist country, but that that is changing fast as many of its 1.3 billion citizens seek meaning and spiritual comfort that neither communism nor capitalism seem to have supplied. Christian congregations in particular have skyrocketed since churches began reopening with Chairman Mao's death in 76. Less than four decades later, some believe China is now poised to become not just the world's number one economy, but also its most numerous Christian nation. By my calculations, China is destined to become the largest Christian country in the world very soon, says Fang Yang Yang, Professor of Sociology. It is going to be less than a generation. Not many people are prepared for this dramatic change. Now, that's the thing about revival. People aren't generally prepared for it. They're not prepared for it because God does something unexpected. And if God could do it in Nineveh in 750 BC, and if he could do it in Bristol in 1739, and if he can do it in China today, why not Paul and Bournemouth tomorrow? Why not? And... uh, it's interesting to hear just rumors of things that are happening actually at the moment in our, in our nation. In Reading at the moment, there seems to be a real kind of softening to the gospel. And there hundreds of people seem to be making some kind of response to Jesus as, as churches are going out on the street and talking about people about Jesus. I was talking to my friend Ian Jukes, who leads a church down in Exmouth last week, and they had a, a New Day on the Road event. The kind of New Day band came and did a youth event in their town. And... Uh, they had 400 kids turn up. Their venue could only take 400. They were turning kids away. They had 116 ch- uh, young people make a response to Jesus on that evening. Extraordinary. There's rumors of things happening. Why not Paul and Bournemouth tomorrow? Now, what does Nineveh and Jonah's uh, time there teach us about revival? One thing it teaches us is that Nineveh needed to repent, and so do we. The command of the king was that everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now, it's easy for us to see why that applied to the Ninevites. The Assyrians were a brutal people. These were the people who would literally skin their enemies alive, hang their skins over the city walls, impale people on stakes. Shock and awe tactics, that's who they were. And it's much easier for us to spot the evil and the violence of other generations and other cultures we look at different periods of history and we look at other cultures in the world and we say, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do slavery. We wouldn't do the Crusades. We wouldn't do Vietnam. We wouldn't do the Rwandan genocide. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't drive a truck into a crowd of people on the promenades in Nice. We wouldn't do that. We look at other people, other cultures, other generations, other points of history and say, well, that's not like, we're not like that. But there's all kinds of things which we do, which other generations and cultures might look back on and say, well, that is really, that was strange, what they did. Other generations or cultures might think it's strange that we spend six billion pounds a year on our pets in the UK. 
other generations and cultures might look at us and think it's odd that we permit 180,000 abortions a year in the UK. Well, during the Brexit campaign, I think we saw something of the lid lifted off actually the, the, the sinfulness of British hearts on both sides of the debate. We saw it in terms of what was, seemed to be unloosed a little bit in terms of more over racism when the boat went the way it did and the disgracefulness and disgustingness of that. We saw it on the other side as well. I think many of my friends, all the people who were, I won't drink a coffee in Starbucks because they don't pay their tax and the banks are bad and big business is bad. But as soon as the economy starts looking wobbly, it's all, oh no, what about my pension? What about my bank account? What about the big business? The kind of hypocrisy that's revealed. Something was lifted off and showed the reality of our sinful hearts. Now, we live in a remarkably peaceful and prosperous country in which most people are, are good, most people are decent people, but our sin isn't far beneath the surface. And if you really want any evidence, just go on the Echo website and look at the comment section behind, beneath any, po any article on the Echo, and you'll see the sin in people's hearts as people hide behind their uh, pseudonyms on, on the Echo website. It's not actually that deep in us. Even in decent, prosperous, peaceful Britain, there's evil lurking beneath the surface. Now, we in the church can be very nervous in talking about sin. We can be very nervous about it because we're deeply conscious of accusations of hypocrisy. We're very nervous of appearing legalistic and harsh, and so we can be very nervous about talking about sin and evil and how people need to repent. But we all need to repent. 1 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says to the church there, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Whichever way you were going, you were led into idolatry. And that's the natural condition of the human heart. Repentance is needed. Repentance is needed. It was needed in Nineveh. It's needed here in the UK now. And so we should pray for the repentance of our nation. We should pray for the repentance of our nation, not in a, not in a legalistic, judgmental, so, not like Jonah. We're not to be like Jonah. We're to be like Jesus. And we're to pray for the repentance of our nation, that people would wake up and see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the human heart and how only God's can rescue us. Something we learned from Nineveh. Something else we learned from Nineveh is that God's grace was sufficient for Nineveh. And if, if God's grace was sufficient for Nineveh, it can be sufficient for us. The, the Ninevites were, were foul people, they were, and they were bitter enemies of God's people, Israel. And yet God was gracious to them. This is what, this is what God's like. God is gracious. And it was God's grace that Jonah objected to. It's what he says to God at the beginning of chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly that the Ninevites had repented. He was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh God, is this not what I said? That's why I try to run away from you. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
What is God like? This is what God is like. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That's what God is like. And God's grace was sufficient for the Ninevites. If it was sufficient for the Ninevites, then it can be sufficient for the UK. And so we need to pray that God's grace, His mercy, His compassion would be seen in our nation. That it would be seen and it would be tasted and it would be embraced just how good God is, how loving He is, how kind He is, how merciful He is, how compassionate He is. And we have this great confidence that repentance and grace are effective because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because Jesus is our substitute. And one of the really interesting things about the Assyrians, this Assyrian empire, the Ninevites and their city, was uh, they were a religious, they were a superstitious lot. And if there were uh, signs, if there was an eclipse or something, something which they didn't understand, they saw that as something which signified an evil event happening, and they would try and take evasive action. And in Daniel uh, Timmer's book about Jonah, he describes what the Assyrians would do to try and avert the evil they saw coming. It says this, Once an evil omen was witnessed, the king would try to avoid his anticipated death or the hardship announced in the omen by putting a substitute king on the throne for a certain time, while the real ruler took the status of a farmer or a commoner but remained within the palace. The substitute himself was typically a person of low standing, a prisoner of war, a death row inmate, or an enemy of the king, a simpleton. For a while... This individual lived a life of luxury since he had to really look the part of the king whose death the eclipse or ominous event portended. Robes, food, a significant entourage residing in the palace with a queen and other royal privileges were his to enjoy for a while. Once a prescribed period was over, the substitute king would then be killed with the hope that the omen's force would thus be exhausted. There's an eclipse, there's something that happens. The king says, this is trouble, I'm going to lose my throne. I'm going to put a substitute on the throne, pretend he's the king, he'll get the trouble, we'll kill him, I'll get away, I'll be safe. And that's how earthly power operates. Earthly power operates by the powerful sacrificing the weak. The powerful use their power to hold on to power. And in our day, in our culture, we don't see that in the quite the stark way the Assyrians did it by putting someone on the throne who's then going to get the chop as a way of averting the problem. But we do see the powerful sacrificing the weak. That's how human power operates. It's how the Ninevites did it, and it's how it happens in Western liberal democracies too. But God does things very differently. Look at these verses. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what God does? God comes in Jesus Christ, and he becomes that servant. He becomes the one who is humbled. He becomes the one who is lowered. He doesn't use power to hold on to power. Jesus steps aside from his power, doesn't take advantage of it, becomes humbled even to the point of death. 
It's a very different way of operating from human earthly power. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sins, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is our substitute. He wasn't the king who took someone weak and vulnerable and put him in the line of fire. No, Jesus is a king who himself has stood in the line of fire. He has stood in our place. He has borne our punishment. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all works forward into time and backward into time. The only reason the Ninevites could repent and know the grace of God was because of what would happen at the cross. And the only reason we can know the grace of God is because of what has happened at the cross. Revival is possible because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. His sacrifice on our behalf is sufficient to bring all people into an experience and knowledge of the grace of God. And so we can pray for revival, knowing that repentance and grace are effective because Christ is our substitute. Jonah was sent to Nineveh to save that city. And he went very reluctantly. He didn't want to go at all. He went reluctantly and he spoke reluctantly and he hated the fact that his message was effective and Nineveh repented. He was miserable and joyless and legalistic and just a nasty, mean-spirited little guy. But through him, the grace of God was sufficient. Now, Jesus was sent to save the world. And unlike Jonah, Jesus came joyfully. So the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus came joyfully to the world. Jesus joyfully took on servanthood. Jesus joyfully took on humanity Jesus went to the cross anticipating joy because he was anticipating multitudes coming to him, countless billions coming to know him, a numerous, unnumberable number being swept up into his kingdom, finding repentance and finding grace. And so Jesus came with joy. And because Jesus did that, and because his sacrifice was sufficient, and because his grace is enough, Let's pray for revival. Let's pray that in our day, in our town, in our country, in our culture, we might see something unexpected happening. A great awakening, a great sweeping in, which touches all of society from the top to the bottom, touches every area of life. A turning from sin and a turning to God, an experience of his grace and of his mercy, which changes individual hearts and ends up changing whole society. Let's pray for revival. Let's not give up on it. Let's not let those, that desire fade away, but let's trust God and ask him for something amazing, something miraculous, something unexpected in our day, because Jesus has done it. Let's pray. Why don't we stand together and uh, I'll lead us in prayer. Jesus, thank you for what you did through Jonah in Nineveh, that despite his reluctance, you did a mighty work of salvation, cause that whole city to turn to you. And Lord, I pray for it in our day. Let's pray for it. Let's ask God together. Let's 
Let's let God stir our spirits. Maybe like me, you kind of, this is something you once prayed for and over the years it's got a little bit cold. You've maybe got your expectation has sunk. Lord God, would you stir expectancy in us again? Would you stir faith in us again, King Jesus, of what you're able to do? We look at uh, the lessons of history. We look at Nineveh. We look at things that have happened in our own nation in centuries past. We see accounts of what's happening in China now with tens of millions of people turning in faith to you. And we say, Lord, why not? Why not in our day, in our nation, in our town? God knows we need it. We need it, Lord. I pray there be an awakening. I pray there be a recognition of our need of you. We're more like Nineveh than we'd care to admit. Our need is greater than we'd ever care to admit. But the grace of God is so amazingly sufficient for us because Jesus what you've done. Lord, I pray you put in our hearts, put in our hearts, Jesus, this desire for revival, to see it break out in our day. Stir faithness, I pray. Come in power, Jesus. May we not be like Jonah, may we not be reluctant to go and proclaim you and what you've done. I pray, Lord, help us, make us winsome as we talk about the reality of sin and evil and the need for repentance. Let's do that in a way which is full of grace. Let's not do it like Jonah, cold-hearted, mean-spirited, pharisaical. Let us do it with the love of Christ. But Jesus, let us see people realize their need of you, their need of forgiveness, their need of grace, and how it's all available in King Jesus. Pray in your sovereign name, Lord. Amen.